All right, so uh, hi, uh, I'm Jim Beitler. Uh, Mary asked me to speak about reconciliation today, and uh, I'll begin with a collect for reconciliation, and then we'll get going. Eternal Father, God of reconciliation, give us grace to make peace with those from whom we are divided, that forgiven and forgiving, we may ever be one in Christ, who with you and the Holy Spirit reigns forever, one holy and undivided trinity. Amen. So in this series, we've been uh, through Lent, uh, trying to clear the debris away, and today we're focusing on reconciliation, practices of reconciliation as a, as a means of doing that. And the series is also about discernment, so trying to put those pieces together um, as well. Um, I went to, uh, when I went to get my PhD, I had done a, a, a BA in English and a master's in theology, and so I was looking for a way to bring those loves together. And one of the ways that I tried to do that was by looking at the rhetoric of reconciliation in my PhD work. Um, and specifically, I focused on the language surrounding truth and reconciliation commissions which are institutions that try to move communities and countries from uh, situations of injustice to something, something better, often democracy. Um, so that, that was kind of, that's kind of the backstory, I think, about why, why I might be here talking about reconciliation. Um, but there's a problem that we're immediately confronted with uh, when we talk about reconciliation, and that's what does it mean? <laughs> what does reconciliation mean? Um, I've come to think of reconciliation, it often functions as what Michael Calvin McGee calls an ideograph. An ideograph is an ill-defined term that often can be used to warrant action. So it almost functions like the reason in an argument, but it's just a term. Uh, McGee likens it to a Chinese character. It conveys a lot of information, right? It can often get people to do things, uh, but it's not always clear what it is. So freedom, right? Um, if I appeal to freedom, I can often persuade an audience to do many things, right, without defining what freedom is. Everybody loves freedom. Um, but unless I define the term, um, um, it's, it's, it's left uh, ambiguous and, and, and can be subject to manipulation. So uh, I, I put a definition of an ideograph there on your handout. McGee defines it as an ordinary language term found in political discourse, a higher order abstraction representing commitment to a particular but equivocal and ill-defined normative goal. Um, reconciliation often functions this way in political discourse especially. Um, and to show that the problem isn't just uh, kind of restricted to political discourse, I, I gave you a quotation there from Brenda Salter McNeil's uh, book, Roadmap to Reconciliation. Um, if you don't have a handout there in the back, it might be useful. You'll probably want a handout if you don't have one. Um, McNeil writes, while many of us care about reconciliation and feel called to pursue it as part of our discipleship, there's no clear understanding of what it means to do so. Even among the leading diversity voices of the day, there are usually vastly different beliefs about what it means to pursue reconciliation. Sure, 
Most of us believe that reconciliation means the ending of hostility in order to bring people together, but we still differ, sometimes wildly, in how we believe God calls us to address and engage it. One of the difficulties uh, with defining reconciliation is it looks different in different situations, right? What, what one really needs to practice reconciliation well is discernment. Um, and uh, because of the particulars of the situation. And we'll get at that more as we, as we kind of go along uh, here. Um, but I wanted to give you one, one more uh, quotation about the difficulty of defining reconciliation. This is a little bit of rhetorical theory uh, for your Sunday morning, and it's, uh, it's a difficult uh, passage. It comes from a, a rhetorician by the name of Eric Doxtiner. Um, but what he's uh, going to argue in this passage is that reconciliation is actually a kind of rhetorical prompt. It gets people talking. A call to reconciliation gets people talking. And it, and it begins, Docstetter says, in something that we share. And that sharing, we share in opposition. That's the first step in reconciliation, recognizing that we share in something. We share in the fact that we're divided, <laughs> um, which is an interesting take on reconciliation. He writes, and again, this is, this is rhetorical theory, a source of historical puzzlement. What is reconciliation? A source of historical puzzlement in contemporary controversy over how to make history. This question asks after those words which constitute a beginning again, that moment in which endless cycles of conflict give way to hope for unity and indifference. It's a rhetorical concept which moves toward mutual oppositions that call forth the character of ethos of understanding. In other words, the character that we share in is our opposition to one another. Now, I don't know, totally agree with that. <laughs> and I don't think that's the bedrock uh, or the starting place uh, for a Christian notion of reconciliation, uh, but it does, it is useful um, because it suggests that um, uh, there, is a, there is a kind of starting place uh, for reconciliation even when we don't share in our religious uh, commitments. Um, and it also suggests that discernment is needed in what it actually looks like because for, for uh, Docstetter, reconciliation is just a, a prompt for more speech, and that speech can look different in a lot of different contexts. Okay, so the problem. I've sketched the problem. It's difficult to define uh, reconciliation. Um, what I wanted to start with then is uh, to kind of move inductively from scripture and try to define reconciliation based on a few passages of scripture. Actually, I'm gonna have you do that. And then I will give you the answers. No, I'm kidding. Um, I won't give you the answers. Um, don't look on the second page, though, because that's, that's the answers. No. Um, uh, so what I'm going to do is I'm going to divide us up, and then I'm going to ask you to turn to a neighbor and talk a little, read a passage together and talk about what, what you think reconcilia reconciliation means based on this passage. Okay. So if you are in this quadrant of uh, the sanctuary, you're reading the first bullet point. Okay, and I put a little snippet there, but that's not the whole passage. You're going to have to actually open your Bible, pew Bible, and read through the passage. And then, what does reconciliation mean? All right, if you're in that quadrant, right, you do the second bullet, third bullet, fourth bullet. And if you get done 
reading the passage and talking about what reconciliation means, you can move to the next bullet, okay? And then the next bullet. It won't take forever, all right? Go for it. James, what, what time should I? What time should I call it? Perfect. Oh, I can, I can. So what does reconciliation seem to mean based on your passage?
Do you need more time, or is that about right? A little more time. Okay. If you get, if you get done with yours, you move on to the next one, right? Okay. Four more minutes. Sounds like it's getting quiet. I know you could talk forever. Maybe not. Who knows? Um, let's, let's hear from some people uh, on this. What did your group talk about in, in terms of what reconciliation means based on this passage? You really can't, can't do it incorrectly. Well, you can, but we won't care. <laughs> any, any comments about reconciliation? In our passage, um, the Matthew 5, 21 to 26, the thing that we noticed, this is um, reconciling. Um, if, so, if someone has anything against you or if you can settle your lawsuit out of court, uh, it's very interesting. The focus is on what you've done, not on what's upsetting you, not what someone else has done to you, but what is your culpability uh, and how can you make that right before it can't be made right. Other thoughts? Reconciliation. It, was that the first bullet point or the second one? That was the first, first. wasn't it? Maybe a, a representative from the second group. <laughs> He's got a collar on, so he... Actually, I'm going to pass this off. He has to answer. Good. Hey. Well, w one thing that struck me in this passage, uh, my translation says that while we were helpless... Um, and I think the thing that struck me is that there's an implication there that under normal circumstances, both parties are kind of functioning in that, that reconciliation. But in, in this theological instance, God is the one that is doing all the work. God is the reconciler. Yeah. yeah, good, great. All right, what about the third bullet point? Let's have a representative from this, from this group. It's up here, right? Yeah. So... In this passage, there's not really a discussion of sin at all or like wrongdoing that has to be addressed, but the reconciliation is between Jews and Gentiles um, that were kind of both the, the commonality that, that that reconciliation is based on is our identity in God. 
Yeah, good, great. So across, across this particular kind of difference. And the last group, do we have a representative willing to talk for, for the last passage? Okay, that's, that's always difficult. Um, we looked at it as, if this is coming from almost like an atomic level of what is reconciliation with like looking at the way things are meant to be, whereas everything is meant to be in God and God in all things. And so in Christ's death, he reconciles the entire like world unto himself. Um, and then we saw that as if we as human beings can see that like all things, the trees, the rocks, the water is all worshiping God and reconciled to him then like divisions among ourselves where we're like at each other instead of worshiping God should like bother us in some sort of funda fundamental level. That's, that's great. And, and that really takes us to the, to the next page on the handout. And, and that is that um, reconciliation is, well, for Karl Barth at least, the theologian Karl Barth, reconciliation is the center of all Christian knowledge. Um, he, at the very beginning of uh, uh, Part one, oh, it's actually part four, uh, uh, 4.1 of his church dogmatics. He writes this, um, and it's, it's just a very, it, it sets the, it, it gives us a sense of the stakes of our topic. He writes, two more years have passed since the appearance of the last part volume. Now, the church dogmatics is big, right? And uh, the, the fourth volume has like five or six volumes in and of itself, all right? So he's working on this thing. He's cranking it out. Two more years have passed since the appearance of the last part volume. For me, they have been more than occupied by work on this first survey of the vast territory of the doctrine of reconciliation. I have been very conscious of the very special responsibility laid on the theologian at this center of all Christian knowledge. To fail here is to fail everywhere. To be on the right track here makes it impossible to be completely mistaken in the whole. Week by week, and even day by day, I have had and will have in the continuation to exercise constant vigilance to find the right track and not to lose it. <laughs> Isn't that just, it just makes, makes it feel so weighty, uh, what this is all about. And when he says it's the center of all Christian knowledge, he really does mean that. Um, and when he says that, he means that the doctrine of reconciliation is the knowledge of Jesus Christ himself. Um, and so the next, the next uh, uh, paragraph from Bart, which I've divided up uh, for you, gives us a sense of all that this entails. The content of the doctrine of reconciliation is the knowledge of Jesus Christ, who is very God. That is, the God who humbles himself, and therefore the reconciling God. God humbles himself. Kenosis, right? Self-emptying love. And this is an act of reconciliation with humanity. But it's not just that. Number two. The knowledge of Jesus Christ is very man, that is, man exalted and therefore reconciled by God. So in Jesus Christ, we see the one who is lifted up, right, to God, as God. So man exalted is part of this reconciliation. And then finally, three, 
in the unity of the two, that is, in the God-man, Jesus Christ, we see the guarantor and witness of our atonement. When we look at Jesus, we, sh- we see the assurance of our own reconciliation. He bears witness to our own reconciliation, even as he makes it possible. And what does this knowledge include? What does it entail? All right. So this is, this is, this is truly the center of it all for Bart. It entails, and I have divided this sentence. <laughs> I Googled this sentence uh, when I read it in the dogmatics. And when I Googled it, because I wanted to copy and paste it into the document. Okay. And when I did that, somebody had divided it up like this. It's a single sentence. And I loved how they divided it up. Because it makes it clear. Otherwise, it's just very difficult. <laughs> the threefold knowledge of Jesus Christ includes the knowledge of sin, the knowledge of the sin of man, his pride, his sloth, and his falsehood. So it's threefold. It's almost Dantean. Um, so we've got, we've got, we, we need to know about sin if we're going to understand reconciliation. What else do we need to know about? We need to know about the event in which reconciliation is made. Man's justification, righteousness, sanctification, holiness, and calling, vocation. It's like a lot of the Christian life (laughs) right there. And then finally, and the knowledge of the work of the Spirit in the gathering, upbuilding, and sending of the community, the church, the work of the church, and of Christians in faith, hope, and love, virtue. (laughs) So it's it's everything, right? Reconciliation is the heart at the heart of it all. in thinking of an illustration for uh, thinking about reconciliation as at the center of this, I was thinking again to our mural uh, on the back and a a quotation from Cyprian uh, who says this, and and it really gets at the sense that, you know, Jesus is the center. The church is one which is spread abroad far and wide into a multitude by an increase of fruitfulness. As there are many rays of the sun, but one light, and many branches of a tree, but one strong trunk grounded in its tenacious root. (laughs) I love, just let me stop there. That's the tenacious root, right, uh, of the trunk, and the the tree is branching out, right? Um, And since from one spring flow many streams, there's the stream, although a goodly number seem outpoured from their bounty and superabundance, still at the source, unity abides. That's the center, right? And it's the source of reconciliation, right? It's, it's, it's what's able to bring all of these branches uh, together. Okay, so we've talked about the problem of reconciliation. We've talked about the fact that it's the center of all Christian knowledge um, and really touches on everything. Um, but let's go to some a little bit more concrete definitions uh, now. So I gave you one from the Evangelical Dictionary of Theology. Seemed like I couldn't go wrong with the Evangelical Dictionary of Theology. So I'll just point out a few features of this definition as we go. Uh, a, it's a doctrine usually ascribed to Paul, although the idea is present wherever estrangement or enmity is overcome and unity restored. That's a nice compact definition. Estrangement overcome, unity restored. And who, who are the people that are reconciled in scripture? 
brothers or sisters, litigants, perhaps man to God, lost sheep to the fold, prodigal to father, the lost back to God. Indeed, reconciliation is exemplified in Jesus' attitude towards sinners. The truth in Athanasius' thought that incarnation is reconciliation. So then we see some of the the parties uh, who are reconciled. The root, the root of the word is a change of attitude or relationship. And then Paul applies it to a number of other groups. Paul applies it to wife and husband, Jew and Gentile, and the alienated divisive elements of a fragmented universe brought under Christ. That was the passage uh, that we talked about, the fourth passage there. Um, I like the illustrations that are given here. Um, It reminds me a lot of um, uh, a lot of uh, the immigrant. Um, The immigrant is kind of a a potent image for thinking about reconciliation. Um, So his illustrations, that is Paul's illustrations of reconciliation, the pictures he gives us, the metaphors he gives us of reconciliation include those who are far off made near. Strangers made fellow citizens or members of the household and dividing walls removed. Those are images for reconciliation. Don't they jive really well with the kind of status of the immigrant um, in some ways? And then the results of reconciliation, we're overcoming estrangement, we have access to God, and we have assurance. That sounds like Bart again. Okay, maybe that's enough definitions, but I'll give you one more definition. This is, uh, again, from McNeil. Reconciliation is an ongoing spiritual process. So it doesn't stop, right? It's, it takes constant work, and it's a spiritual process. It's, it's, it's something that God does. And what does it involve? It involves forgiveness, repentance, and justice that restores broken relationships and systems to reflect God's original intention for all creation to flourish. So it's not just about relationship between two people, it's about structures, right? Yeah. Totally. Yeah. I, I uh, completely agree. That's one of the reasons I really like. I like this actually for th- this definition for three reasons. One, actually four. One, it's a process. Two, it's a theological process. Three, it involves systems, not just individuals. And number four, it gets at some of the other. The, those constellation, that constellation of terms that are wrapped up in reconciliation. So reconciliation is about these other ideographs, forgiveness, uh, justice, uh, repentance. Um, so this is, a, I think, a really important point when thinking about reconciliation, and, and that is um, reconciliation isn't just about how I relate to you. It's about the rightly ordered society. It's about what it means for a society to be just and good. 
Um, and one, one uh, scholar who has gotten at that really well is a scholar by the name of John Hatch. And I wanted to um, uh, point out his framework to you, and that's actually on the next page. I know we're getting a lot of concepts, but we're defining our terms. So John Hatch talks about the social values of reconciliation. Um, and he writes this. Reconciliation works not only to bring together alienated parties and restore their relationships, but also to restore interconnected social values that have been split apart or unbalanced through acts of violation. So there are, we, have, we have values as, as a society. We value justice. We value truth. We value agency, human freedom. We value peace. Reconciliation disrupts those. Uh, the vi via, uh, sorry, injustice disrupts those um, values. And reconciliation attempts uh, to bring those back together. I, you know, I think of the South African Truth and Reconciliation Commission um, and the acts of violation that occurred. Like, often people just disappeared. Like, and there was no knowledge about what happened to them in, in the country. Um, that, that, is, that is a hiding of the truth. And that's why a, a, an organization like a Truth Commission is so important, because it tries to reestablish the historical record. What happened in this situation in which people were dis disappeared? Um, uh, in South Africa, for example, uh, agency is diminished. So you have uh, someone like Nelson Mandela, who's put in prison for 27 years, or 33 years, many decades. Uh, where he's forced to, you know, break stones, uh, essentially. Um, so agency is diminished. Uh, you know, justice is denied. People's rights are restricted based on the color of their skin. You know, you look a certain way, you can't go into a certain area. You can't own land in a certain way. And violence, right? Bodies are burned. Um, the horrible practices. So acts of violation take these social values and, and, and they diminish them. Um, and then you can see in Hatch's uh, framework that there are also terms that are kind of pointing toward the center of this pyramid. And I think about these terms as what is necessary to bring about reconciliation in the wake of injustice. So for example, if injustice has occurred and you want to bring about reconciliation, what, what does justice need to look like in order to do that? It can't be just retributive justice. It can't be just the perpetrator needs to be punished, right? It has to be, as you see in the chart, restorative justice. Restorative justice says the perpetrator needs to be punished, yes. The survivors need to, to be restored, and the perpetrator may need to be restored to the community as well, which is a difficult process. Um, in situations where peace has been replaced by violence, what is needed is shalom. 
right? A restoration of the harmony and delight in all of one's relationships. And that comes about by truth-telling, giving people back agency, giving people back justice, moving towards those other parts of the pyramid. Um, and likewise uh, with these other things. Um, Hatch uh, gives us one other uh, picture, and that's the compass. Um, these are the things that are, some of the things that are required for reconciliation. And you can see it's, it's just so complex. And again, this takes us back to the, the notion that discernment is ultimately required to practice reconciliation well. Okay, we've done our definition work. Now we go back to the scripture. And I'm going to take you back into groups after I read this. And so here's what I want to know. I want to know how the social values of reconciliation that I just talked about, truth, agency, justice, how those things are restored in this episode. Okay? How is restorative justice practiced? Early in the morning, he came again to the temple. All the people came to him, and he sat down and taught them. The scribes and the Pharisees brought a woman who had been caught in adultery. And placing her in the midst, they said to him, Teacher, this woman has been caught in the act of adultery. Now in the law, Moses commanded us to stone such women. So what do you say? This they said to test him, that they might have some charge to bring against him. Jesus bent down and wrote with his finger on the ground. And as they continued to ask him, he stood up and said to them, Let him who is without sin among you be the first to throw a stone at her. And once more he bent down and wrote on the ground. But when they heard it, they went away one by one, beginning with the older ones. And Jesus was left alone with the woman standing before him. Jesus stood up and said to her, Woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? She said, No one, my Lord. And Jesus said, Neither do I condemn you. Go, and from now on, sin no more. How are the social values of Hatch's schema, how are they enacted in this scene? Okay, that's a question to ask in your groups. Try it. True.
you about five minutes. So I know you could probably talk about this for a while. I, I think that one of the points here is that if, if Jesus, if, if reconciliation is the center of all Christian knowledge and, reconcilia and reconciliation is about the knowledge of Jesus Christ, then everything Jesus is doing is about reconciliation. And we see it unfolding in this passage. The woman is given agency. There's restorative truth uh, being told. There's justice uh, for her. She's told to not sin, and there's justice uh, for the Pharisees uh, as well. And we don't know. That, that could have been the start of their restoration as well. They needed to be put in their place, right? There's also agency for the woman. She can go uh, her own way uh, again and grace uh, for her. Um, it's all working toward a kind of harmony and delight in all of these relationships. That's shalom. Um, this is a scene, a potent scene of reconciliation. And I wanted to conclude by just giving you one more uh, um, scene of reconciliation. This one comes from uh, Anki Krog's absolutely fabulous uh, book. The book is called Country of My Skull. Um, this is a South African uh, journalist, Afrikaner journalist, trying to reckon with the fact that she is white and a beneficiary of apartheid. Uh, so, you know, how does she reckon with her complicity in the system? Even though she didn't, like, kill anybody, right? She benefited uh, from the system. So uh, it's a difficult book. Um, so it's, it, you know, it's, it's, a, it's a hard read because it, it um, recounts some of the injustices. Uh, but at the end, she is on a boat with the Truth and Reconciliation Commission, uh, 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 um, chaired by Desmond Tutu, right? And he's kind of sitting in the boat, and she's like watching him as they're on their way to, a, to an event at Robben Island, which by this time has been converted from a prison into a kind of site for peace. And so they're on their boat, and she's thinking, you know, some, something has happened as a result of this Truth and Reconciliation Commission. Because of Tutu and because of the commission, something has happened. And then she gives us this poem. And I want to read it to you, and then I'll just go through it quickly, okay? And then we'll be done. Oh, and to understand this poem, it helps 
to recognize that it's full of enjambment, which you might remember is the continuation of a sentence beyond the end of a line, okay? Um, so there's kind of like, there's a pause, but there's not a pause there. All right. Because of you, this country no longer lies between us but within. It breathes becalmed after being wounded in its wondrous throat. In the cradle of my skull, it sings. It ignites my tongue, my inner ear. The cavity of my heart shudders toward the outline, new and soft, intimate clicks and gutturals. Of my soul, the retina learns to expand daily because by a thousand sto stories, I was scorched, a new skin. I'm changed forever. I want to say, forgive me, forgive me, forgive me. You whom I have wronged, please take me with you. Now, I know it's a lot, first reading. Because of you, this country no longer lies. Right? Because of you, this country no longer lies. There's been truth-telling, right? But it's also, because of you, this country no longer lies between us, but within us. There's been a kind of restorative truth telling that's gone on. It breathes becalmed. There's the peace after violence. It breathes becalmed after being wounded in its wondrous throat. Here comes the agency. In the cradle of my skull, it sings. It ignites my tongue, my inner ear. The cavity of my heart shudders towards the outline, new in soft, intimate clicks and gutturals of my soul. There's restoration in the agency. There's transformation. And then there's justice. The retina learns to expand daily because by a thousand stories, I was scorched a new skin. There's a lot going on with that metaphor. But I, I, I hear, one of the things I hear going on with that metaphor is repentance in ashes, the kind of burning of bodies that took place. She has been scorched as a result of hearing these stories, as a result of the truth-telling that's gone on. And then asking for grace. I'm changed forever. I want to say, forgive me, forgive me, forgive me. It's a litany. You whom I'm wronged, who I have wronged, please take me with you. This is the, the plea for restorative justice at the end. All right, let me close with a collect for reconciliation again. Dear God, Father of reconciliation, give us grace to make peace with those from whom we are divided, that forgiven and forgiving, we may ever be one in Christ, who with you and the Holy Spirit reigns forever, one holy and undivided trinity. Amen. Thanks.